The following sermon is from Dr. Dan Kitanoia, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you've never reached out to Calvary before, we'd like to hear from you. Visit our website at myhomecalvary.org. That's myhomecalvary.org. And now, here's Dr. Dan. Have your copy of the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, in your Bibles, Romans is in the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. To get to Corinthians, you went too far, okay? And we're back in Romans chapter 9. We uh, had been working through... We worked through the first eight chapters of Romans, and we broke for the holidays, and then a special series on Ephesians, and well, now we're back, and I'm excited to return to Romans, but I've also been anxious about returning to Romans because I knew chapters 9 through 11 were coming, and so they are uh, uh, complex passages. Uh, From my understanding, their basic teaching is simple, but we've complicated them a bit because while the, under, the text is relatively simple, accepting what it says is a little more difficult for us. And so I'm just going to pre- preach it as most faithful as I can, but I want us to get something. The Apostle Paul wasn't concerned about how we were going to debate passages in 2022. He was answering problems and teaching theology. And one of the problems that he was wrestling with was, what has happened to God's promises to Israel. Now, most Christians in their lives will have seasons where they wonder, where is God? What has happened to his promises and his power? Just this week, I heard several examples of this. I had a, a Christian brother talk to me about uh, years ago, he was uh, serving in a college, collegiate ministry and had various roles, and there were people that he served alongside with, one of which had gone on to be a missionary. Now, since then, this missionary has come off the field and has essentially claimed to be an atheist. He denies belief in God. And how does that happen? And when that happens, it's it's disheartening and it can shake our faith. And then, as a guy who's been quite keenly interested in Ukraine for some time, I actually uh, was am preparing to teach at one of their seminaries as, as a mission project. And, of course, I'm watching with anxiety over what's taking place in Ukraine. What I know that many others don't know is that Ukraine perhaps has the strongest gospel presence in all of Europe. And so I am not only concerned about the humanitarian crisis that this undeclared war has brought, but I'm also concerned about its impact on the cause of Christ. Sometimes it's big things like war. Sometimes it's smaller things, but... Sometimes the things that we think of small are small are not always all that small. Friday night, Austin got sick, and, and uh, he, he was pretty sick. And so they say I cleaned up after him, and I got him on the couch with a bucket and came back and checked on him after a while, and he said, I keep praying that this will go away, but it's not. Now, that's just a one sentence, but I know, also know this in the context of he's been praying that COVID would go away since it started. And he said to, somewhat recently, I keep praying that COVID would go away, but it doesn't seem like it is. And so my dad ears went up and I said, I have to address this at some point in the near future. And I'm going to address it because he's not the first Christian who's trying to be faithful in prayer to find that it seems like God's answers are slow. I'm going to teach him from the book of Daniel what Daniel experienced. He sat down and prayed and he prayed for three weeks 
and it seemed like God wasn't answering, and all of a sudden an angel shows up, the archangel, and he says, hey, listen, God heard you from the beginning. He sent me, and I've been dealing with opposition, but I'm here now. And, and so I'm going to have to teach my son Austin that God's delay is not necessarily God's denial. But while we wait for an answer, we often struggle with doubts. If you're not catching it, what I'm going to tell you is this. Our passage is highly doctrinal this morning, but it also is quite practical. Because that is exactly what these Christians are dealing with. Can God's promises be trusted? And we deal with these in various reasons. For some, it's frustration with the fact that why we still struggle with the same sins that we always struggled with and thought we would have gained victory over by now. For others, it is the continued resistance of a loved one to the message of the cross. Whether it is political concerns in the, in the moral scene in America or more personal spiritual matters like a child's seemingly unanswered prayer, all Christians at some point struggle with questions about God's promises and power. If you are struggling with that this morning, hear me. You are not alone, and you are hardly the first Christian to struggle with doubts about the reliability of God's power and His promises. In Romans 9-11... through 11, the apostles, Paul, addresses what was apparently a somewhat scandalous problem connected to God promises, God's promises and power. Since God sent our Savior Jesus, the Messiah, the King of the Jews, the question is, why are so few Jews believing in Him for salvation? Why are so many rejecting Him? That was scandalous. Seems lost to us because we're Gentiles, most of us, and we're pretty happy to be saved. But this was a problem for those of Israelite heritage because it seemed like maybe God's promises to the Jews were failing. And this was a problem for non-Jewish people because it begs the question, if God can't and won't keep His problems to Israel, if He has failed, how then can we Gentiles trust in His promises to us? You feel the tension yet? Paul's answer to the problem of the Jewish rejection of their Savior is that it is all a part of God's sovereign plan. And we'll see that sovereign plan today beginning in Romans 9. And we're going to, look at, we're going to begin with verses 1 through 5 and drop down to verse 30 to 32. But keep your Bibles open because we're going to look at the entirety of uh, Romans chapter 9. So please stand if you're able to in honor of the reading of God's Word. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. For they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Drop down to verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. 
They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, this opportunity to gather together in worship and in scriptures. I pray that this passage, this text that you and your wisdom have made sure to include in the scriptures would edify us. We pray that today we'd have a minds to grasp what you're saying and spirits that are willing to accept it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to say one thing about verse 33 before we dive into our passage. There it is quite evident that God anticipated that many Jews would reject the Savior. And thus it says that the stumbling stone in a rock of offense, which is Jesus, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This was not unexpected to God, but it was unexpected to the Jewish people. And so we see beginning in, in chapter 9, verse 1 through 5, and verse 30 to 33, that we're dealing with the problem of the rejection of the Savior. The Israelites had mostly rejected God's offer of justification through faith in Jesus. And so here is the problem that drives this section of Scripture. Most Jews were not and today are not believers in Christ Jesus. They preferred to continue to try to earn salvation through works of the law rather than by being declared justified by God through faith in Jesus Christ. The stumbling stone. The Old Testament law shows that people, that we are sinners, but it does not enable us to obey God. The result is that all people sin. The Jews sin by breaking the laws that God had given them through Moses. What about Gentiles, non-Jewish people? Well, the Gentiles didn't have the law. But God had revealed much of himself and his ways through the created order. They didn't know as much as the Jews, but they rejected what they did know. They sinned and gave hearty approval to others who sinned and declared their independence from God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the conclusion. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The Jews, by and large, were rejecting this offer from God, preferring to try and earn righteousness rather than being declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus. And Paul says they have failed in that attempt. So was God caught off guard by the rejection of Christ? Was he shocked to discover that, by and large, Israel was rejecting their Messiah? Did God say to himself, well, I didn't see that coming? You know the answer is no. Paul's answer to the Romans in chapters 9 through 11 is absolutely not. God will actually use the Jewish rejection of Jesus and the Gentile acceptance of Jesus to ultimately bless Israel too. And we'll see that when we get to chapter 11, but today is, there's plenty to deal with on its own. The rejection of Christ by Israel fits into God's plan to save Israel. God's plans and purposes to bless cannot be thwarted. So let's think about that. First thing we need to look at is the purpose of God's election and salvation. 
God chose Israel to be his people, but that does not mean that all Israel was going to be saved. Take a look at verse 6 through 9. We see that God makes distinctions even among his people. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. See the distinction there? Verse 7. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. So the promise to Abraham about a son was about Sarah not Hagar. If you remember the story, God made a promise to, to Abraham, you're going to have kids, but the problem is Abraham's old, and so is Sarah, and they, to this point, had been unable to have children. God made a promise. Well, it seemed like God was slow in fulfilling his promise. So Sarah cooks up a plan and says, hey, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Abraham, I'm going to give you my servant Hagar. You will marry her. You will have a child through her. We're going to help God out because he needs our help to advance his plans. And as you know, Ishmael was born, but he was not the son of the promise. Isaac was. Because the promise was to Abraham through Sarah, not Hagar. A distinction is made. Biology does not ensure that one is truly a child of God. That is what Paul's point is. Ishmael was born to Abraham, but he was not the child that God had promised to Sarah. Verse 10 through 13, we see that then God intervened, or inverted rather, the natural order and chose Jacob, the younger son, over Esau, the older son. Look at verse 10 through 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works but because of him who calls she was told the older will serve the younger as it is written jacob i have loved but esau i hated now a lot of ink was has been spilled over the meaning of the last few words because they're harsh i'm not going to address all those we got a lot to talk about but know this at the very least, it means this. God chose to bless Jacob and not Esau. That's the point. But the distinction in verse 10 through 11, catch this Bible-believing Christians, don't miss this. The distinction in verse 10 through 11 is not faith versus works, but election versus works. God chose Jacob while he was in the womb and had done nothing, either good or bad. And if you remember the story of their lives, neither one of them were all that good. In fact, his name literally means, like, deceiver. And so he lived up to his name. God chose Jacob while he was in the womb, and he rejected his twin brother Esau, the older one, which was an inverting of the natural order of things. This was all done while they were in the womb. The election of Jacob is plainly said to have nothing to do with works, but it has everything to do with God's election his choosing. Paul's point? 
God chooses whom He will bless. And when you read the rest of these verses in context, it becomes evident that Paul is saying that God chooses to save some and not others. And he is using Old Testament, Old Testament examples to make and defend that argument. The purpose of election is so that God's plans do not rest on man's will or works, but on God's work and God's will. Our salvation does not rest on any effort on our part, but on God who elects. That's what he's saying. Why is this good news? It is good news because it means that someone does not have to have a perfect understanding of theology to be saved. You guys know this instinctively to be right, but sometimes we act like that's not true. Why do they not need to have a perfect understanding? Because it does not depend on our mental striving. Why is it good news? It is good news because our salvation does not rely on what our Catholic friends call the Mass to complete it. Salvation is a work of God, not the Pope. It is not built upon good works like church attendance. We attend church because we are saved, not so that we can stay saved or complete our salvation. A little side note, being expelled from the church as a Catholic is not a small matter. It's roughly the equivalent of saying you are going to hell. Well, we Baptists don't believe that, but sometimes we act like that might not be true. We go to church not to stay saved, but because we are saved. Why is it good news? It is good news because having a perfectly nuanced grasp of baptism isn't necessary for salvation because our salvation begins and ends with God's sovereign will. I have literally read and heard people say that if you don't have a perfect grasp of the doctrine of baptism, particularly their understanding of it, then you are not saved and you are going to hell. This is because they hold to a works salvation. And Paul is arguing for election as primary. Why is God's election good news? This one you guys will like. From time to time I have been asked, and perhaps you've wondered, and I've wondered this before anyone even asked me, I've been asked, what happens to people who are born with a developmental disability that renders them unable to understand well the gospel. It renders them unable to verbally explain that they understand the gospel. What about babies who die in infancy? What happens to them? Now, we usually appeal to what happened with King David's son who passed away, and he says, I will go to him, but he can't come to me. And that's a pretty good encouraging argument. But if God... but God's purpose of election and salvation means that someone who cannot have a firm grasp of biblical truth or give a clear gospel response can be saved. Am I saying that understanding the gospel is not important? No, what I'm saying to you is this. If we are looking at people and we recognize the limitations because they die at a young age or because their developmental limitations render them unable to respond, we can plead to Scripture and hope that we've understood David to really be saying that, or we, we can, which is fine, or we can look and say, you know what? 
Their salvation rests on a loving God who sent his only begotten son to die on, on the cross for them. Will not the judge of the earth do right? I think that he will. It was a rhetorical question when it was asked in the Bible, and it's a rhetorical question now. He will do right. And so for me, this is a cause for hope. But the ones who die in infancy, die in the womb, or who do not seem able to make an intelligible response to the gospel, I know that my Redeemer calls people. He chooses. And He does right. The purpose of election is that God's plans do not rest on man's will or works, but on God's work and will. Verse 14 through 18. You feeling uncomfortable yet? Now you know why I was anxious about preaching this. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He can do what he wants. Verse, eight, verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion. King James says runneth. We'll explain that in a minute. But on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, in verse 16 it says, And the King James runneth, and the ESV says exertion. Who's right? Well, they're both trying to give you a fair representation of the Greek word treko. In some contexts, it means running. In other contexts, it means exertion. Literally, I wrote it down, to move, to make an effort to advance spiritually. So let's look at it in context. It depends not on human will or human effort to make advances spiritually. It doesn't depend. Listen, you might have responded to a gospel invitation, and praise God, but understand something. It wasn't because you walked down the aisle. Can I tell you, people have walked down an aisle and have walked off of their faith later. Billy Graham had a buddy named Templeton. He actually was expected to be more prominent than Billy Graham, but eventually abandoned his faith. And before he died, he actually wrote a book called Farewell to God. Perhaps it doesn't really depend on human will or exertion. And so here we have it. It's not based on human will or exertion. It's not based on our running after God while those are good things to do. It is not based on our making an effort to advance spiritually. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And God chooses who, which sinners to show mercy on. Does that mean, and here's where I know you're getting uncomfortable, does that mean that we are not responsible for rejecting or accepting the gospel? I'm going to tell you what I think Paul's point is. His point is, when we accept the gospel, it's because God elected us. And when we reject the gospel, it's because you're a sinner. In the final analysis, we are responsible but we must come to grips with this fact. We are not saved. We are saved, rather, because of God's election, not because we responded to an invitation, went to church, or prayed a prayer, or got baptized. Because you believed in Jesus, you may well have done those things, but those things come after God's election. 
while we are responsible for, for responding in faith to the gospel message, we must understand that God's sovereign election precedes our response. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that should encourage you. Paul's point here is that since God is sovereign over election and salvation, the rejection of Jesus by the Jews does not mean that God has failed. It means that their rejection of Jesus was part of his plan. Ultimately, he will use the Jews' rejection of Jesus to bring salvation to the Jews. We'll see that when we get to chapter 11. But this should give us hope when we start to think that God's plans and power have gone off the rails. Today it is sufficient, however, for us to understand that our hope is built on the prerogative of God, not the fickle, sinful, imperfect will of man. So let's take a look at the prerogatives of God's sovereignty and salvation. Verse 19 to 23. But you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man? To answer back to God, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. By now, you're probably sufficiently uncomfortable. So let's talk about the image he uses, this creation of vessels. Well, this week I heard a, a story that I'm sure many of you have heard by now about the traveling fish platter and the Inman family. If I mess the story, I do my best to be accurate. I probably won't have all the details, but... Essentially, Chuck and Hyla, in, in, when they got married in 1957, they got a fish platter. And if you've ever been married, you know that some of the gifts are, well, more, get more used than others. And it was a ceramic type of thing, and it looked like a fish. It had, like, fish bones drawn into it. And it was, do you guys even eat fish? No, okay, so my, we don't really either. So they don't, so they don't even eat fish. Like, okay, do I'm going to give you a story of my own. We, Chrissy and I got a picnic basket. We're not really like Victorian-era picnic goers, so it was like, well, this is a nice gift. But then I open it up, and inside, what's inside? Uh, a bottle of champagne, and I'm like, you do know I'm a Baptist pastor, right? <laughs> so some gifts get used more than others, all right? So they got the traveling fl- this platter, and it just kind of disappeared, and then uh, uh, Becky tried to sell it at, at a, a garage sale, and no, there was no takers. Twice, okay, twice. Nobody wanted to redeem the fish platter. But eventually, somehow it came about that they're like, this fish platter eventually became sort of the, it began to become a butt of an inside joke, and now it's like this kind of glorious thing. They started to pass the, the plate around, and if you got married or had a major anniversary, you got the, uh, the, the fish platter. And then they built a, gl- a glass case around it. So this thing that nobody wanted couldn't even buy it. Like, we sold stuff at a, at a, fish, at a, a garage stuff like a quarter. Nobody wanted the, the fish platter. Twice. Well, now it's in a glass case, and there's a little sheet in there that says who got it, how long they had it. Can I just suggest to you that the person who, the potter who made the fish platter had no idea? He had a plan and a design for the platter, but being shoved into a corner and forgotten 
trying to be sold. Nobody wanted to redeem it. And now it's this like honorable thing in their family to get. No clue that that's what was coming. I thought that through, and I remember the days when I worked at a, in North Olmsted, I worked in a restaurant called Romano's Macaroni Grill. It's a, it is a chain, and ours was just like slam busy all the time. And one of the unique things about our restaurant was if a, a waiter or a cook dropped a plate and it shattered and you hear that unmistakable, every, all the workers would just start. Every once in a while, because we just needed some action, a cook would just go chuck a bowl. Did I, I had to think about, did I ever do that? I think I did once, and I felt guilty about it, to be honest. Then I was worried I was going to get fired, so I never did it again. But they, I threw this little monkey bowl. This is what they call it, a monkey bowl. They put a little white sauce called Asiago cheese sauce, and you dip your bread in it. Well, I threw one, and it's, it, it smashed. The potter who made the fish platter and the potter who made the monkey bowls at Macaroni Grill had a plan and a purpose over how they were going to be used. He or she probably would be a little less than thrilled to know that his fish platter was the butt of an inside joke. He also could not have seen that it was going to be redeemed in a glorious way. And it's like Now they're afraid to break it. In the end, he had a plan, but he had no control over it. Paul is saying that's not true of God. The monkey bowls with the macaroni grill had a nice color, and they were, I would call them, beautifully simple. Minimalistic elegance. They were pretty sturdy, too. Some of them bounced when you dropped them. They had a good plan and a good design. What the potter lacked was control over the free will of the cooks in the kitchen, who decided that they should be used for something dishonorable, for destruction or laughing and clapping when they were accidentally broken. For some reason, when we read this passage, we want to think that God cannot create vessels for destruction and others for salvation, for honorable use and dishonorable use. We are the pots, and we want to tell the potter how he can make his pots. The point of this section is that in raising up vessels for destruction and then smashing them with a rod of iron, there's Psalm 2 image, the vessels destined to receive mercy and salvation will see the destruction, comprehend the glorious power of God expressed in his judgment on the vessels of wrath, vessels like Pharaoh. This will then stir others to repent, to turn away from their sins and believe in Christ Jesus so that they may receive God's mercy. You see the judgment, you recognize God's powerful, and you, res you repent. We don't preach on hell a whole lot anymore, but maybe if we saw and focused on the torment of those in hell, we might go, I don't want that. I don't want any part of that. And then I repent. Pharaoh was responsible for his rebellion against God, and yet we see that God seems to be taking some credit now, doesn't he? And although we are responsible for what we do with God's offer of salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, God's sovereignty has the ultimate and final voice. 
Some of you don't like that, so let me give you some encouragement. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and faith. Paul denied the conclusion that God cannot find fault in human beings. God is absolutely sovereign, and he determines all things. And at the same time, human beings are responsible for their choices and actions. Now, we struggle with this for two reasons. Number one, and I saw this as I examined the commentaries, guys who normally are really excellent and faithful to text just kind of bounce all over the place because they couldn't handle the sovereignty of God. First, we have embraced a philosophical vision and a philosophical version of free will, which rejects the idea that our free will could be overruled by God. We have embraced a philosophical vision and a philosophical version of free will, which rejects the idea that our free will could be overruled by God. Make no mistake, when you read the passage and you study the commentaries, it boils down to this. The passage is pretty straightforward. Our problem is that we have accepted something that was actually not in the Bible and pushed it in the Bible. Are you saying there's no free will in the Bible? I'm saying there is, but it's not as free as you say it is. So this philosophical view of free will is at odds with Scripture. For Scripture tells us that we are sinners by birth and by choice. Pharaoh opposed God, and it says that God raised him up, but can I tell you there's lots of people that oppose God for lots of reasons. Scripture tells us that we are sinners by birth and by choice and that our hearts are desperately wicked. How free then is your will actually? Our free will is hemmed in by our sin. Do you believe that? I know that you do. You're Baptists. Second, we too are limited in our understanding to grasp the fact that God is sovereign over our choices and that we also have free will. We, are, we too are limited in our understanding... We are too limited in our understanding to grasp the fact that God is sovereign over our choices and that we also have free will. And some of you will say, I just contradicted myself. And I would say, no, I have given you what is called an antinomy. Antinomy, A-N-T-I-N-O-M-Y. What is that? An antinomy is when two truths appear to be contradictory but are not. An example of an antinomy in science is a light beam. What is light made of? It is made of waves, and light is made of particles. Both are true. And in the Bible, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man are in antinomy. Both are true, like James's large, small group. But understand this. The pots have free will, but only the potter's free will is unlimited. The will of the Lord, the potter, that is what will stand. Let's look at the purpose, prerogatives, and promise of God and why it gives us hope, verse 24 to 29, and, and we'll conclude. Even us, whom he has called, there's that word again, called, think, summonsed. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, 
There they will be called the sons of the living God. Once again, God's making distinctions. Verse 27 through 29. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them shall be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Translation, if God didn't intervene to save anybody, we'd all been destroyed. That's election at work. Some are uncomfortable with this. There's a theological thing out there called double predestination. Can I just say that we're all sinners by birth and by choice? So that's not really the problem. Despite Israel's choice to reject Christ Jesus, God is not done with them. The hardening of Israel to God's salvation through Christ is only partial and not permanent. God's promises do not depend on man's will. They do not depend on Vladimir Putin or President Biden or your own will for that matter. Not ultimately. Your parents, your spouse, or your boss. God's promises do not depend on circumstances. He controls the circumstances. So how does a Christian respond to this? What are we to think? Well, today, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, how do you respond? Well, understand that it is not because of the will or the striving of man that you're a believer. Oh, your free will entered into it and your response entered into it. But God elects. Rather, it is because God is merciful on whom he wishes to be merciful. Some struggle with that. But for me, it gives me a lot of hope when I think about the child who dies in the womb or is aborted, or the person who doesn't seem to be able to verbally respond to the gospel. I was asked about this this week. And there's other good arguments, but I like this one better, to be honest with you. What do we do? I think we should be grateful that we're saved. Be hopeful because we understand that it didn't actually rest on our ability. Listen, there are people who teach that if you, you can sin your way out of, heaven, out of salvation. I would simply say this, if it depended on my exertion, I would not stay saved. And neither would you. Some are wondering, do I actually believe in missions at this point? Well, guess what? We have a missions meeting that I'm organizing, so yeah, we do. Paul wants us to understand that those who reject Christ, it was all in God's sovereign plan. The potter knew what he was doing. Be grateful, be hopeful, be humble. For it is because of God's sovereign choice and election that you choose, seemingly of your own uninhibited free will, to put your trust in Jesus Christ. Because if the Lord had not intervened, we would have all been like Sodom and Gomorrah. When you doubt whether God really called you to salvation, you can look to the day that you repented of your sins and believed in Jesus and know that the events of the glorious day of your salvation were due to the sovereign will of a gloriously powerful God who loves you. 
When you see storms, on, clouds on the horizon in the world or in your life, remember God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was in control of your salvation yesterday. He is in control of today, and he's in control of your redemption tomorrow. Are you unsure if you're one of God's elect? Chad, if you want to come, bring, come up for our song of response, our invitation. Maybe you're wondering, am I one of the elect? Well, you can make sure that you are. How? By becoming a disciple. A believer who follows Jesus Christ. This morning, determined to repent, to turn away from your pursuit of sin and put your trust in Jesus for salvation. This morning, if you want to become one of God's elect, to know that you are, you must receive the gift of salvation. You must respond to his invitation to turn from sins and believe in Jesus Christ. Call on him for salvation. If you'd like to do that, respond by to God's calling, his invitation, by making your way to the front during this final song. I will help you call on the Lord for salvation because whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Please stand for our song of invitation. You've been listening to Dr. Dan Kitanoia, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website at myhomecalvary.org. That's myhomecalvary.org. Thank you for listening.